Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. They say for the lust murderer, the idea of killing starts as a fantasy, a daydream, an ignis fatus or a foolish fire, a will-o'-the-wisp, a delusion and ephemeral dream. But this fantasy soon leads to obsession, and obsession builds to compulsion. No case exemplifies this better than that of Issei Sagawa, a Japanese scholar, novelist, painter, and porn star. Yes, porn star, who is also a murderer, necrophile, and cannibal. He turned his disgusting fantasies, obsessions, and compulsions into reality, then created a cottage industry of art and stories centered around them, becoming a bizarre celebrity. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the story of Issei Sagawa, the Kobe Cannibal. Let's begin. On June 12th, 1981, René Hardevelt was hurrying through the streets of Paris and to the apartment of a friend to help him with a project on German poetry. René was 22 years old and working on her PhD in French poetry at the prestigious Sorbonne University. She was Dutch and had only been in Paris for six months. She was strikingly beautiful, tall, statuesque, with large almond-shaped eyes, full lips, and lush brown hair cascading over her shoulders. She was also absolutely brilliant, fluent in German, English, French, and Dutch, a scholar of literature with a deep passion for poetry. A close friend of Renee's from the university was doing a project on German poetry and had asked her if he could record her reading some poems since she was so fluent in German. The friend was a Japanese man, known affectionately as Pang, though his real name was Issei Sagawa, and he himself was working on a PhD in comparative literature at the university. Pang was a bit of an odd duck. Tiny, only four foot nine inches tall, weighing about 85 pounds, with a large, odd-shaped head, he was extremely shy and introverted. But like René, he was a dedicated scholar. He had a master's degree in Shakespearean literature and could himself speak several languages. Both of them were outsiders of sorts, she from Holland, he from Japan, and they'd bonded over their love of writing and literature. He'd offered to cook her dinner if she'd record some poems by Johann Robert Becker about the nature of death and help him translate them. This was their second night working on the project. She knew Issei had a crush on her. He'd even told her as much. But she told him she liked him very much, but didn't feel romantically towards him. And they'd agreed to remain friends. And she did like him very much. Indeed, she'd even written her parents back in Holland, telling them about him, and saying how nice it was to have a good friend. Again, she'd only been in Paris for six months and was glad to have met such a nice, gentle, and highly intelligent person. Renee knocked on Issei's apartment door, and he answered, all smiles, eyes glinting from behind thick glasses, a frail little man, well over a foot shorter than her. He ushered her inside, where she sat down in front of a tape recorder and resumed the project they'd started on a few days earlier, as he busied himself in the kitchen, cooking them dinner. Renee cleared her throat, hit record on the tape recorder, and began to recite the Johann Robert Becker poem. As Renee's strong voice filled the space of the tiny apartment, words which translated as, What kind of times are these when to talk about trees is almost a crime because it implies silence about so many horrors? Issei silently scurried behind her to a closet, and retrieved a rifle he bought earlier from a French farmer. Renee reading on, oblivious, 
Issei nervously raised the barrel of the rifle to the back of Renee's head. The German word sang, Yet I eat and drink, echoing in his head. With these words, Truly I live in dark times, Issei squeezed the trigger. The bullet slamming into the neck of Renee, piercing tissue, shattering her spinal cord, and ripping out through her chin. She slumped forward, instantly dead. The blood-spattered tape player recording the gurgling of her blood as she slowly slipped off the chair and tumbled to the floor. Issei Sagawa would then commence a nearly three-day orgy of debauchery and cannibalism on her corpse, mutilating and eating her, sexually assaulting her, storing body parts in his refrigerator, and cramming the remains into a suitcase he would unsuccessfully try to dispose of in a lake. But he was a terrible criminal, leaving a long trail of clues and was quickly apprehended. But there would be no trial for this admitted murderer, necrophile, and cannibal. In fact, within a few years, he'd be a completely free man who would exploit his infamy and crimes in novels, poems, paintings, a comic book, and even pornography, becoming a Japanese porn star. Asked about his horrific crimes, he would say, Sometimes I wonder why I did such a horrible thing. Maybe it's because I come from another planet or another dimension, and I accidentally fell to Earth like a meteorite, disguised as a baby crying on the street. My mother walked by and took pity on me. I must have come from a place of cannibals, and I'm the only one of my kind who exists on this planet. How did this bizarre man escape justice and go on to become a Japanese celebrity, acclaimed writer, and porn star? Well, let's get into it. Shall we? Chapter 1. A Little Boy Named Issei Issei Sagawa was born on April 26, 1949, in the seaside city of Kobe, the capital of Hyogo Prefecture, Japan, where the famous beef that is sometimes consumed raw comes from. His family was quite wealthy and respected. His father, Agera Sagawa, was president of the Corito Water Industries, a huge manufacturing company, and his grandfather was the chief editor of the Asahi Shimbun, a major Japanese newspaper. Issei's birth would be a difficult and nearly fatal one. While pregnant, his mother fell down a flight of steps and nearly miscarried, causing Issei to be born four months premature and be so tiny that he could fit in his father's palm. He also suffered multiple health complications, including enteritis, a disease which attacks the intestines. And in order to save his life, doctors had to inject him with saline, with potassium and calcium. He managed to pull through, but doctors didn't think he would survive for very long. But little Issei did survive. Though he was a sickly and weak child, tiny and frail, but his parents showered him with love and adored him. He lived a privileged and carefree childhood. He would go on to describe his childhood as the best time of his life. He was a funny, scrawny child and a very fussy eater and was constantly told he must eat to survive. Desperate to have the frail child eat, his mother would tell him that if he didn't eat his food, a monster would come and eat him. When Issei was a year old, his mother gave birth to another son named Yun. Yun was a healthy, robust boy and quickly grew to be just as big, if not bigger, than his older brother. Everyone called them the twins, and they were best friends, inseparable and constantly together, as if joined at the hip. And Issei's little brother, Jun, would stand by him and take care of him to his dying day. Though they were extremely close, Issei says he was always aware of the healthy fullness of his younger brother, compared to the scrawny frailness of himself. 
Every new year, the Sagawa family would act out a funny little story. Their uncle would pretend to be a cannibalistic monster, trying to eat up Issei and Yun, who were little princes. And their father would pretend to be the good king, protecting them. They dress up for their parts. And there's footage of this you can find on the internet. Old 8mm home movies. In the story, their father, the king, would fight the cannibal monster. But the beast would blind the king and slay him. Then, as the king lay dead at his feet, the monster would grab Issei and Jun up into his arms and carry them to a large kettle in the kitchen and put them inside, pretending to boil them alive. It sounds like a lot of fun. Something I would have loved as a kid. Hell, that I would love now. But while Issei had fun during this little act, he would have terrible nightmares afterwards of being boiled alive in a pot with his brother to be feasted on by a terrible monster. But while so fear-inducing, the nightmares fascinated Issei, and he became obsessed with man-eating giants and devils, seeking out any books or art depicting them he could find. And there are lots of them in Japanese culture. Totally. My son was obsessed with yokai as a little kid. He learned about them at his school, and he just went down that rabbit hole. They're like these Japanese spirits and monsters. And he was really into the kappa, which is like this turtle creature that lives in outhouses and rivers and loves cucumbers. They'll like come up out of the outhouse and go into your butt to attack you, sucking out your life force. I think that it's really just to teach children to be careful around water. Like if you watch out, if you go around the water, the kappa will get you. But uh, my son wanted to dress like one for Halloween one year. So I made him this huge paper mache turtle shell and we got him a really cool mask and gloves. It was it was so much fun. Okay, do we need to look up whether Stephen King was inspired by the Kappa for the Dreamcatcher novel? The have you read Dreamcatcher, the shit weasel yeah, that like the shit weasel. comes I know all out about of the it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now I'm curious. I got to look this up. <laughs> um another yokai is the Gashadokura a spirit that takes the form of a giant skeleton made of the skulls of people who died in the battlefield with massive protruding eyes and enveloped in yellow and green fire, wandering late at night and eating anyone they encounter. They're also insatiable and only get hungrier the more they eat, like the Native American Wendigo, who we covered in our Halloween episode. When the Gashadokura approaches, You'll know, because you'll hear a clattering sound from their teeth that goes, gachi, gachi, gachi. He also became obsessed with Western fairy tales that involved cannibalism. In particular, Hansel and Gretel, just like old Armin Muse, the German cannibal from last week's episode. And just like Armin, Issei would fixate on the children kept in cages to be fattened up and eaten. He'd read that part over and over and over until he was dreaming about it. And he'd fantasize that it was children from his school in the cages and that it was he that was going to eat them up, salivating over the thought of their plump legs. He says he was always aware of the roundness and fullness of other children's bodies and how he was scrawny to the point of skeletal. He felt incomplete and developed an overwhelming desire to have what he lacked. Quote, I have always felt a sense of being half-formed, a part of me, a physical essence, missing, a part that is pink and soft. End quote. His dreams grow darker and more bizarre. He'd be in a surreal and hellish landscape with a bizarre giant monster, and all the girls from his school would be in cages dangling from chains. The horrible creature and he would wander through the maze of cages, looking for the right little girl to pull free and devour. At this time in 1950s Japan, sex was a completely taboo subject, in particular in the Sagawa family. It was never talked about. Issei had never even heard his parents mention the word sex before. He didn't know what it was. And when he got his first erection, 
He was terrified. He thought something was wrong with him, that he was sick, but he was also overcome with a deep feeling of shame, but also filled with bizarre lusts and disgustingly encouraged the dog to perform oral sex on him. As we discussed with Patrick Kearney on the first Freeway Killer episode, bestiality, or zoophilia, as it's called in the DSM-5, where it is listed as a specified paraphilic disorder, is a huge red flag and can point to a very dangerous antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, I was a guest recently on a podcast called Crimes, Killers, Cults, and Beer, hosted by my good buddy Bill Selby. Fun show. And uh, we were discussing German serial killer Peter Curtin. He engaged in like all sorts of bestiality. I mean, really taking it to a new level. It's so disgusting. But um, he was really like one of the most ruthless and terrifying people that I think ever, ever lived. I mean, he was the worst of the worst. And I just think that it shows like just a huge lack of empathy and love, uh, deep primal selfishness and sociopathy where they only see the world for what pleasure it can give them, what they can get from it. You say his sexual desires began to take on even more perverse dimensions when he incorporated his cannibalistic urges into them. Just thinking of a girl's thighs, how smooth and creamy the skin was, how much he wanted to eat them would send him into a sexual arousal and delirium that he became physically sick and would vomit. But he was an excellent student and a voracious reader with a deep love of the classics. Even from a very young age, he adored the music of Beethoven, losing himself in the symphonies. But it wasn't just the music that fascinated him. It was his life as well. How Beethoven was miserable and ugly and crazy, but still produced such profound art. He graduated from high school with excellent grades and went into Waco University to study English literature. It was here he would meet a Western girl for the first time, an American. She was very friendly and sweet, and Issei went to the beach with her and a group of other students during the summer holiday. The girl wore a bikini on the beach, and Issei was overcome with how healthy and vivacious she looked, tall and powerful. As the girl swam in the surf, Issei swam about her legs, imagining he was a shark and biting into her thighs. That night, he slept in a room opposite of hers, and it being summer and very hot, all the windows were open, and he lay there all night fantasizing about creeping out through the garden in the moonlight and slipping through her open window to knock her out with a blow to the head and bite her buttocks. This girl provoked a change in Issei. While his cannibal fixation had always been directed towards women, it now began to focus solely on European and American women. He says it was all tied up in the westernization Japan had gone under after World War II. The Japanese people now obsessed with American and European culture, the pinnacle of which Issei found in the image of Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly was an Academy Award-winning actress who became the Princess of Monaco when she married Prince Rainier III. Issei saw her in the film High Noon and was absolutely captivated by her. She was idolized the world over, but while most were captivated by her sparkling eyes, and perfect cheekbones, her radiance and full figure. Issei was focused on her shoulders, how round and soft they were, how much he wanted to sink his teeth into them. He'd explain his fixation like this. I am a weak, short, ugly man. I know that. That is the plain truth. But that is why my yearning for something big and wholesome was so strong. And for me... This was a Western white woman, a beautiful one. He began play acting, as he says. The beast in me made me find a secret place for his rituals. Yeah, it's just like Armin Muse, who we covered last week. He'd pretend to be eating human flesh while he masturbated. And he saw himself as two parts, the animalistic monster and the rational human. But these two parts were working together. The rational part of him saying, 
just satisfy the beast a little, and he will let you alone for a while. He finished his undergraduate work and then moved on to Kwansai Gakuen University in Tokyo to work on his master's degree on the plays of Shakespeare. At 23, living in Tokyo, he noticed a beautiful blonde German woman had moved in near him and was overcome with a desire to eat her. He stalked her for days, falling deeper and deeper into fantasy. One night, he came to a decision. He had to have her. He simply could not resist the urge anymore. He slipped on a rubber Frankenstein's monster mask, grabbed an umbrella, which he planned to use to knock her out, and climbed through her open window into her apartment. For me, this is simultaneously terrifying and hilarious. First, the thought that he could knock a person out with an umbrella. Like, how's that going to work? And second, this four-foot, nine-inch guy creeping around with a Frankenstein mask. I mean, he must have looked like a child. But I also think this shows just how lost in fantasy he was. Like, why an umbrella, right? Well, we mentioned he was obsessed with yokai. And I can't help but think maybe he was fixating on the Kasa Obaki. Kasa Obaki are umbrellas that become monsters, often depicted with one eye and a long tongue. They're a yokai that is part of the, the folklore of Sukamogami, or haunted tools. Could his fantasy life have melded with his reality so much so that he considered the umbrella a mythological monster to help him achieve his terrible goal? Well, we don't know. It's just speculation, but it's certainly interesting to think about. Right? But we do know that once he was in the apartment and saw the woman soundly sleeping in her bed, he ditched the umbrella. He went to the kitchen and retrieved a knife. His desire was to cut a piece of her flesh from the sleeping woman's buttocks to eat. He skulked up to her, knife in hand, trembling. And as he readied himself to stab, his knees brushed up against her, awakening her. The woman bolted upright and screamed in terror at the sight of Issei in his Frankenstein's mask with a knife in his hand. In a panic, Issei scrambled away, heading back to the window to escape. But the woman grabbed the scrawny little guy, pummeled him, and held him down, pinning the squirming little man in the Frankenstein mask to the floor while she called the police. Yeah, I love this. I love it. Honestly, this creepy little guy getting the shit kicked out of him by this woman and then held down while his intended victim calls the cops. It's funny as hell and really poetic justice. Issei was arrested and charged with attempted rape. He dared not tell the police that he was actually there to cut her up and eat her. But before the matter could go to court, Issei's father paid the woman to drop the charges. And she did. So nothing came of the incident. But his father did demand that Issei see a psychiatrist, which he did. After talking to the psychiatrist about his fetishes and obsession with eating human flesh, the doctor declared him incredibly dangerous and deeply troubled. But nothing was done. And a few years later, after receiving his master's degree in Shakespeare, he was headed off to Paris. He left for Paris on April 26, 1977, his 28th birthday, to study comparative literature at the Sorbonne University. Paris was not as he had imagined it. It was a cold place, far from inviting and warm to the literary scholar. The French people can be known for sometimes being brusque and even rude to foreigners, especially during that time period. He was a stranger in a strange land, an outsider in every way. And the French language did not come easy to him. He had a hard time learning it, which was a significant barrier. And the people were cold to him. He was incredibly lonely. He felt so insignificant and other, tiny in a world of giants. He was also surrounded by the objects of his desire. Back in Japan, it had been rare to see a Western woman, but now they were everywhere. It was simply overwhelming. His desire to eat a woman had become all-prevailing. He says it had changed from an obsession into an obligation. When actress Jean Seberg, 
a beautiful blonde famous for her work in the French New Wave cinema, was found dead in the back of a rental car of an apparent suicide, naked and cloaked only in a white blanket. He became obsessed. The car had been parked quite close to his apartment. He began to imagine what it would have been like if it was him who had found her, fantasizing about using a shopping cart to bring her back to his apartment. He would skulk through Paris at night, peering into cars, hoping to find a beautiful naked white woman he could eat inside them. <laughs> this really displays how he was 100% a product killer. As we've mentioned in other episodes, there's product killers and process killers. Product killers kill for the product, namely, you know, the corpse, which they wish to play with, eat, or defile. Process killers are sadists who kill because they enjoy the act of murder, the process of taking the life from someone. Once the person is dead, they have no use for the body and quickly either abandon it or dump it somewhere. Issei just wanted the product. He would repeatedly say later that he had no desire to kill at all. He just wanted to eat a woman. He was so focused <laughs> on the product, a body, and so lost in fantasy that he went out at night hoping to just find a dead woman laying around. Crazy. Oh, goodness. He began to write about his fantasies of cannibalism, sometimes on paper, but often just in his head, writing a script where he would only be an actor acting the crimes out. He hired sex workers with the idea of killing and eating them, but could never bring himself to do it. Though he came very close to strangling one as she took a shower. And then he met Renee. For Issei, it was love at first sight. The moment she walked into that classroom, he was drawn to her. Absolutely captivated and obsessed. Later that day, he drew her from memory. He approached her, and she was actually quite nice to him. Asked him to come to dinner with some other literature students, and they became friends, bonding over their love of poetry. Issei became determined to kill and eat her. On a trip to southern France, he bought a rifle from a farmer and readied himself for the job ahead, planning it out in his mind, searching for an excuse to get her alone in his apartment. He told her he was working on a project for a class on German poetry, and the professor wanted the class to use recordings of the poetry in German. Since his German was atrocious and hers was perfect, he asked her if she'd recite some German poetry he could record. In exchange, he'd cook her dinner. She agreed and came to his apartment. As Renee read, a nervous Issei retrieved the rifle he'd bought, crept behind her, and pulled the trigger and nothing happened. It had jammed, or the bullet had been incorrectly loaded, but the gun did not fire. He quickly turned, put the rifle back, and went back to cooking. Renee never noticed, never suspected a thing. After she left that night, he spent hours on his hands and knees, sniffing and licking the chair where she'd sat. Ugh, that's so nasty. <laughs> Two days later, he'd invite her back again, and this time... He'd be successful. When the shot rang out and she fell from her chair, Issei was so shocked by what he'd done that he passed out. When he awoke, his first reaction was to call an ambulance, try to save her. But then he reminded himself, this is the moment you've been waiting for your whole life, what you've planned and prepared for. And he steadied himself for the job ahead. He covered her head with a towel, then undressed her having difficulty rolling her over because she was so much bigger and heavier than he was. And there was the object of his cannibalistic desires, her buttocks. He stared, fixated on her right buttock, thinking how delicious it looked, though he says he was scared of her left buttock as it was closer to the heart. And he says he was afraid of blood and worried that the left buttock would have more blood within it. Finally overcome, he sunk his teeth into the flesh, expecting it to give like a mound of cheese. But the flesh was firm, and the little man actually hurt his teeth trying to bite into it. So he went to the kitchen and retrieved a fruit knife and tried to slice into it. But the thick flesh wouldn't cut. So, frustrated, he goes to the store and buys an electric carving knife. 
Using the electric carving knife, Issei was able to easily slice into her buttock, expecting a nice steak-like cut of red meat. But instead, he saw what he described as a chunky yellow substance like gooey corn, which was, of course, human fat. He dug deeper and deeper, finally finding red meat beneath the thick layer of fat. But it was so deep, he couldn't get the knife down into it. So using his fingers, he dug down through the yellow fat, pinched a bit of red meat, and yanked it free, plopping it into his mouth. He describes the meat as soft, tender, and flavorless says it it melted in his mouth like tuna sashimi. A mad lust was building inside him. He turned her back over, kissed her lips, and whispered to her in French that he loved her. Je t'aime. Now, in a sexual frenzy, he raped the corpse. Afterwards, he cut off pieces of her lips and ate them raw. Then, using the electric carving knife, he severed her left breast. He attempted to bake it in the oven, but the fat began to render and liquefy, so instead he fried it in a pan and ate it with mustard. (laughs) He then began to butcher the body, starting with her thigh, placing each cut in the refrigerator, listening to the tape of her reciting Johann Robert Becker poetry over and over, photographing it all as well. He'd once taken a luxury cruise and befriended a Greek butcher who'd explained to him all the basics of how to butcher an animal to retrieve the finest cuts of meat. And he put all this gained knowledge to use, soon filling his small refrigerator. He took so much meat from her left thigh that only the femur bone was left. Renee Hardevelt was just 25 years old. She was beautiful and absolutely brilliant with a full life ahead of her. She spoke five languages fluently, was working on her PhD in French poetry, when Issei Sagawa savagely killed her that sad and terrible day, and then disgustingly desecrated her body. For the next two days, Issei would continue to butcher, eat, and sexually assault her body, eventually cutting off her head, arms, legs, and nose, slicing out parts of her vagina, and swallowing them whole. It was June, the hottest month of the year. The remains were beginning to turn, and he knew that soon the stench of death would be overwhelming, so he decided to get rid of the body. He says in his mind he kept having these visions of Lake Inferieur in Bois de Boulogne Park, one of the largest parks in Paris, actually created by Napoleon in 1852. It was almost like a spiritual vision. The water and the trees... This disgusting little man was trained in classic literature, and this historical park became almost like Avalon to him, a hidden place he could pierce the mist and bring the body to, hiding it deep beneath the water. I also think of the name, like Inferior. He was very much an inferior human, his height and weight and strange head, and he says he always felt inferior his entire life. He suffered from a deep-rooted inferiority complex developed as a very young child. Some of his first thoughts were that he was different from the other children, who were full, plump, and healthy. Could the name of this lake have been the reason he fixated it in his mind and it called to him? I don't know. Something to think about, perhaps. Well, he bought two large suitcases, and after wrapping the body parts in plastic, managed to cram Renee's remains inside of them. He then called a cab and and drug the suitcases out to the curb. The cab driver, helping him lift the suitcases into the cab, remarked how heavy they were, and jokingly asked if he had a body in them. Issei laughed and said, no, books. Interestingly, this exact same thing happened to infamous cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer. He too once had a body in a suitcase, and the cab driver joked that it felt like he had a body in it, and he too claimed it was only books. Bizarre coincidence. Totally. And to exemplify just how lost in fantasy Issei was, the park, lake, and entire situation were nothing like he thought it was going to be. It was after six o'clock in the evening, and he thought it would soon be dark, and he could slip into the empty park unnoticed. But it was the middle of June, near the summer solstice, 
meaning days were the longest of the year, and the sun was far from setting, and the park was packed. There were sunbathers everywhere, couples strolling, children playing, families picnicking, and it was huge. He didn't even know where to get dropped off. The cab driver didn't know what to make of this strange Japanese man with all this heavy luggage asking to be dropped off at the park. It made no sense. Issei loaded the two suitcases onto a dolly and awkwardly began to wheel it into the park. But the suitcases were incredibly unwieldy for the admittedly weak and scrawny little man. He struggled to maneuver them into the park and made a spectacle of himself, people stopping to stare, wondering what he was doing as he dragged and pulled and pushed the dolly and heavy suitcases over the grass and into the trees. He managed to find a secluded pond, but struggled to get the bags down the slope to the water. And at some point, exhausted, he finally just gave up getting the suitcases to the water and simply shoved them into some bushes. As he started away, the sun just beginning to dip into the horizon, that magic time when pastel shades of orange and purple begin to fill the sky, he noticed he wasn't as alone as he'd thought. There was a couple up on the hill as well as a man walking along the edge of the pond. The man noticed the suitcases secreted there in the bushes and asked Issei if they were his. Issei had a choice. He could say, yes, they were, and gather them up and leave with them, or just deny it. Being cowardly, he said no, they weren't his, and quickly began moving away, glancing back and seeing to his horror that the man was unzipping one of the bags. As Issei entered the trees and disappeared into the forest, he heard the man bellow in terror and began to scream, Murder! Murder! Police were quickly on the scene, interviewing everyone at the park who had seen the strange little man struggling to wheel the heavy suitcases around, tracking down the cab driver as well, who gave the police the address. And within 48 hours, Issei was picked up as he went to enter his apartment and in custody. He immediately confessed to everything. Issei's father flew to Paris and hired his son, one of the most expensive and influential criminal defense attorneys in Paris, one Francois Gibault, who had been president of the International Academy of Comparative Law. Francois began an insanity defense, stating Issei committed the crime during a psychotic break from reality and declaring Issei not fit to stand trial due to his serious and chronic mental illness. The judge ordered Issei to be remanded to the Villehouf Psychiatric Hospital to be diagnosed. Issei would remain in this hospital for years. The initial findings found him cold, self-serving, and deeply insecure about his height. While institutionalized, Issei was despondent and depressed and said he was very suicidal. He spent his time alone, choosing not to interact with the other patients. Listless and nearly catatonic, slipping into a deep state of despair. But then, a major Japanese production company asked the famous Japanese playwright Karajuro to write a screenplay about the murder. Researching the case, Juro wrote to Issei, and the two men started a correspondence. Issei says the idea of turning his crime into a work of art captivated him and gave him a new will to live. So Issei began to draw and write, using his love of art and literature to explore his inner self as a means of understanding what it was he had done and why. He says the event felt like something from a dream, and by writing, he was able to confirm its existence, that it happened, and come to terms with it and his true nature. Okay, I just have to make a couple comments. One... The fact that turning his crime into a work of art gave him a new will to live makes me fucking mad and want to punch him in his stupid short <laughs> little face. Two, while I am always behind the idea of using one's love of art and literature to like make meaning out of madness, still F this guy. And three, wait, what was three? Mm. Three, why was he given this platform? Like what on earth? Ah. <sighs> Issei began work on what he says was a fictional novel called In the Fog about a murderer and cannibal trying to understand his own inner self and says it was written purely for himself and not meant to be seen by others, 
explaining that it was a cathartic exercise in self-examination, but all the while corresponding with Kara Juro. In 1982, Kara Juro published what was billed as a fictional story called Letters from Sigawa that contained much of his factual relationship with Issei. It was darkly comedic, and he used the incident to examine the clash of Eastern and Western cultures, often citing Gulliver's travels and using the image of a man lost in a world of giants as a metaphor. It was hugely successful in Japan. Praised for its intellectual approach, was a bestseller, the first printing quickly selling out, and won the prestigious Itagawa Prize. And that September, Sagawa's own book, Into the Fog, was published. He claims without his permission. It sold several hundred thousand copies before his father demanded the printing be stopped and it was taken out of bookstores. His father did, however, accept the royalties. Got to pay off that high-powered attorney somehow. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, the judge in Issei's case, Jean-Louis Bruguerre, found Issei unfit to stand trial by reason of insanity, but stipulated he must be confined to an institution for the criminally insane. Renee's parents were obviously irate, and we requested another examination, but their request was denied. Issei's lawyer, Francois Gibault, was hard at work putting pressure on both the French government and the people to have Issei deported back to Japan, exploiting their right-wing sensibilities. He portrayed Issei as a foreigner whose visa had long since expired and whom the French taxpayers now had to support. He makes statements saying it wasn't France's responsibility to pay for this foreigner's expensive medical treatment, and it should be done in Japan. And it worked. The judge ordered Issei to be deported back to his home country. There was just one stipulation. He could never return to France. His arrival was a media sensation. Not only was he a murderer and a cannibal, he was also a best-selling author. Issei was technically a free man when he got back to Japan. France had found him not guilty by reason of insanity. And to complicate things further... His records were sealed and not released to Japanese authorities. And Issei had committed no crime in Japan, so they were unable to charge him or put him on trial. But his father, knowing that if he walked off the airplane and into society, journalists and the public would go crazy and it would be worldwide news, instead managed to have an ambulance pick him up from the airport and he was sent to Matsuzawa Mental Hospital in Tokyo one of the best treatment centers in all of Japan. As much as I want to hate his father for all of the cleanup that he did, he doesn't sound like the most unreasonable person. Like, I don't know. I'd be interested in like hearing more about what his internal thought process was. Issei's examining psychologists all declared him sane and found sexual perversion was his sole motivation for murder, but came to the conclusion that in the three years since he'd committed the murder, the desire had left him. He was considered no longer a danger to society. After 18 months in the hospital, Sagawa checked himself out on August 12, 1986. The press hounded the family, and his parents were destroyed by it all. His father was forced to resign from his powerful job. His brother suffered stress-related health issues, and his mother even attempted suicide. Issei attempted to live with his parents for a while, but he was so besieged by the press that he had to go into hiding in the countryside. But the press tracked him down there as well. He felt the media was crafting an image of him that was wrong and beyond his control, so he started giving more and more interviews. Then, in July of 1989, an infamous Japanese serial killer was apprehended, a killer by the name of Sitomu Miyazaki. Tsutomo Miyazaki murdered four young girls, aged four to seven, in Tokyo between August 1988 and June 1989. Like Issei, he too was a necrophile and cannibal, sexually assaulting the girls' corpses and eating them, as well as preserving body parts as trophies. Also like Issei, 
Tsutomu was the son of a wealthy family with roots in the newspaper business. And he was born premature with severe complications. Tsutomu had a rare birth defect that caused his hand joints to be fused together, preventing him from being able to bend his wrists upwards. But unlike Issei, Tsutomu was a pedophile and sadist who sent the relatives of his victims cryptic letters and the teeth of the victims. Utterly horrifying. Miyazaki was arrested in July 1989 after being discovered taking nude photographs of a young girl. When police searched his apartment, they found 5,763 videotapes, some showing footage of his crimes and the victims. But most were anime and horror movies. Japanese media dubbed Miyazaki the otaku murderer. An otaku is a person obsessed with modern culture including comic books, manga, anime, and horror films. And these products of modern culture came to be blamed by both the press and public for the crimes, saying that Miyazaki had retreated into a fantasy world of manga as a result of his neglected upbringing. And that fantasy world caused him to become a killer. This caused a moral panic in Japan, similar to the satanic panic the United States went through in the 80s and 90s. Newspapers, television shows, radio programs, all went into overtime exploring the culture of this murderer and speculating on the psychology that could have caused the crimes. And during the media uproar, Issei Sagawa was brought up a lot. Not only were his background and crimes eerily similar, There was also the question of mental health and insanity and how pop culture may have been an influence. Issei was asked to write about Miyazaki and wrote an essay which was published. The essay was highly critical of Miyazaki, whom Issei saw as a disgusting sadist and nothing like him whatsoever. While Issei had killed and indulged in cannibalism and necrophilia, it hadn't been a sadistic act of torture. He took no pleasure in the actual killing. He hadn't wanted to hurt anyone. He was just overwhelmed with the desire to eat human flesh. And he hadn't taunted the press or the parents of the victim, all of which he found disgusting. Differentiating himself from Miyazaki, Issei said he was just a, quote, frail, sentient being fated to crave for the substance I lacked, end quote. Again, like Armin Muse, who found serial killers disgusting and beneath him. The morals of these people is just so bizarre and hypocritical. Point in fact, Armin would have found Issei's crimes horrendous. Not just because he killed an unwilling victim, because she was female. Armin thought only men should be eaten, as women were necessary for the survival of humanity. Crazy, crazy logic. Issei's views on the crimes were widely publicized, critics calling them profound. So Issei began writing more. He began to make public speaking appearances. While some were outraged, most were captivated. He was elegant and well-spoken, cultured with a vast knowledge of literature and psychology. And a sleazy Italian film was made in 1989 called A Ritual de Amor, or Love Ritual loosely based on Issei, and further cementing his fame. He became billed as king of the cannibals and turned his crime into a cottage industry. He wrote over two dozen books and screenplays, painted bizarre death scene paintings. And most distasteful. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. (laughs) He also became a food critic and was actually featured on the cover of a popular Japanese culinary magazine. Jesus Christ. About becoming a food critic, Issei said, For me, eating is an extension of seeing someone I like, of touching someone I like, and smelling someone I like, and kissing someone I like. For me, eating is to fulfill the hunger of existence. What I mean is, because of this desire for something unattainable, I like to see, I like to feel, I like to kiss, and then I like to eat. Eating is an extension of the senses. So for me, eating is not an extreme action. I don't even know what that word salad means, to be honest. (laughs) 
In discussing his sudden rise as a cultural celebrity, he said, A mental freak like myself becomes public property. I deserve it, I suppose. I feel my whole purpose of existing is to feed a public appetite. Their appetite for transgression. This guy is too much. When he was approached and asked if he'd be interested in being in a porn film, he says he just couldn't resist. So he embarked on a new career, that of a porn star. In 1992, Sagawa appeared in Hisayuso Sato's Ukazami Shijokazemi, which means unfaithful wife, shameful torture, appearing as a sadosexual voyeur. This one's free online. I watched it. And in my opinion, it's not really a porno film. It's more erotic and arty. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some pretty explicit scenes in it, but it feels more like an art film than a porno. And Issei isn't even in it much, just in the background, basically. But then after that, he went and wrote and starred his own porno film with the unimaginative and on-the-nose title, I Want to Eat You. I was able to find bits and pieces of this movie, and it's pretty gross and absolutely just full-on fucking hardcore pornography. And he's like, while he's having sex with this pretty girl, he's like chewing and gnawing on her, which is really disconcerting. And at one point, she pees on his face, which I really did not need to see. Scrawny little dude with a weird shaped head kind of looks like an alien getting peed on. It's so gross. But you see the things I do researching these stories for all you guys? You're welcome. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. In another porn film, also produced by Issei, there's a sex scene in a Holland-themed park with windmills using a tall Dutch actress that looked just like Renee, something that many saw as exploiting his crime and being completely unrepentant. And he was giving interviews like crazy that also make him appear crass and unrepentant as well. In a British interview in 2007, he says, quote, My kind of desire, it is still the same. When I see all the beautiful girls' legs, I want to eat them. So I'm not cured at all. For the 2007 British documentary, The Cannibal That Walked Free, he's interviewed by Japan's top criminal psychiatrist. He openly says his libido and his appetite are interconnected and adds by saying, When you see the beautiful girls on the train in the summer, you see their legs and you think they look good. But I think they look delicious. He admits to masturbating to his fetishes in the documentary, but says it causes him to calm down and makes his compulsions go away explaining that masturbating is a way of suppressing his urges. The psychiatrist narrows it even further to the act of breastfeeding, using a woman's breast to survive, and I do not get this shrink. That's not cannibalism. Most human beings on the planet have breastfed, but this is the only famous porn star cannibal and murderer that I'm aware of. So for me, that that, theory is out the window. No. Breastfeeding does not cause one to become a murdering necrophile cannibal porn star, at least as far as I'm concerned. Seconded. (laughs) The doctor goes on to say that because he was spoiled and coddled as a child, he didn't learn good impulse control. Okay, so so many of the killers we cover on this show have had severe head trauma or come from terrible, violent, broken homes. But this rich kid's deviance is because he was spoiled. It's like doctors blame whatever they want and are just grasping at straws. And for me, it really goes to show we don't understand extreme deviant behavior at all. We don't understand murder, sexual assault, fetishes, necrophilia, cannibalism. It's just a bizarre mystery why this happens. Maybe that's why we're so fascinated by it. Defending himself as a porn star, he said simply, quote, I have to be vulgar to survive. As his image of a scholarly intellectual exploring deviant psychology and transgression through art and writing faded into that of a media hog that was openly exploiting his crimes for profit, Issei managed to put the final nail in his coffin by writing a manga entitled simply Manga Sagawa. 
This was his most graphic and disgusting recreation of his crimes yet, and not marketed as fiction at all. But the actual acts are drawn out in detail. It's absolutely disgusting. The drawings are crude and childlike. They almost look like Dr. Seuss characters. Horrifying images of him smiling away as he holds up Renee's decapitated head and masturbates, cutting her open, raping her corpse. Even his brother, who'd always supported Issei's literary and artistic efforts, said it was too much, that it shouldn't have been published, that it shamed the family. And what irritated Europe, particularly Holland, about Issei's celebrity status was that while he'd become known as a famous cannibal, Renee Hartevelt's name was barely ever mentioned. She was just a girl he'd eaten. And that's what now defined her. Her death had not only been exploited, but her actual life was never discussed and explored. The tragedy of what happened to her. And, you know, it's still going on. I did a ton of research on this case. Watched all the documentaries that were made throughout the years. Listened to his interviews. Combed Reddit subgroups. Read the only book in English that I could find on the subject, The Celebrity Cannibal, which don't even bother. It's only 33 pages long and filled with grammatical errors. This podcast is much longer and more thorough, and I hope better written. But anyway, in none of these places can I find any real information on Renee, besides the fact that she spoke all these languages and was studying French poetry. Nothing about what she was like as a little girl, her high school and undergraduate days. Nothing, which is really sad. You know, this calls to mind the episode that we did about Mercy Brown and Robert Koch and how I said something along the lines of like, history has turned so many undeserving men into heroes. And, you know, the women like Mercy Brown was reduced to a vampire and you can't find anything about her or her life. And I did the same thing, looked for, you know, tried to, if she was interested in poetry, how nice would it be if you, this motherfucker had all this shit published undeservedly so and like could we find one piece of her writing that you could like hold up and like include with the show notes to like give her five goddamn seconds of something and you can't find you can't find anything it's crazy so that's just really maddening (sighs) Issei's rise to celebrity was over I want to say thankfully or mercifully but it was not nearly Mm -hmm. soon enough it should have never happened in the first place his reputation as an intellectual was fully tarnished after the the Magna, and he was simply a sad, disgusting, and infamous little man struggling to get by, scorned by all, friendless, and alone. Still not bad enough. Unable to even pay rent, he was forced to move into public housing and go on welfare. 2005, Sagawa's parents died, and he was banished from the funeral, told not to attend. A devastating blow. He would go on to perform a daily ritual in their honor every day of his remaining life. In 2013, Sagawa developed a cerebral infarction, which permanently damaged his nervous system, causing him to twitch uncontrollably and seriously affected his ability to walk. As it was in childhood, his younger brother came to his aid, wheeling him about, protecting him, helping him survive. And on the 24th of November, 2022... Issei Sagawa died from complications of pneumonia at a hospital in Tokyo at the age of 73. And that's the story of the Kobe cannibal, Issei Sagawa. Scholar, intellectual, murdering necrophile cannibal, and porn star. (laughs) Crazy one, huh? Ugh, I'm glad he's dead makes me super angry gross i can't it's just like i can't believe he was like not only did he not have to be punished for what he did not only did he escape justice but was like weirdly celebrated and this wasn't like a you know like what just popped into my head is that um the man who was featured in the movie catch me if you can mm-hmm. like he went on to have a career with the FBI and was like, you know, a brilliant mind. But he didn't, like, you can argue that the things that he did certainly hurt people. He could have hurt people worse, pretending to be a doctor. But, like, he didn't murder and eat someone. Like, how are you celebrating and 
putting stock in the things that this person is saying about another Japanese serial killer. Like, and I know that the profiling thing probably, I'm trying to think of like timeline wise, you know, the FBI, all the stuff that was coming out of the US about like serial killer profiling, like maybe they didn't have as many experts at that time period to like make comments on somebody like Makasaki and they had to rely on Issei Sagawa, but like, you're trying to tell me there wasn't somebody, some intelligent psychiatrist that whose views we could have like paid more attention to than Issei Sagawa's? Come on. Yeah. And, and you know, his holier than thou bullshit, like, oh, that guy's bad because. Right. Like, dude, you're bad too, motherfucker. Fuck. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. And you know we want to hear from you. Do you got a case you'd like us to cover? Do we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. We will see you next week. Bye.